quit being the world's best kept secret. Your time is now. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kozowski, and I'm excited because, you know, I get the pleasure of meeting really incredible people who are doing amazing things in this world. And today, I get the privilege of talking to Susan McKenty Brady, and she is with uh, Deloitte and Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women and Leadership at Simmons University and the first Chief Executive Officer of Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership. The Institute develops mindset and skills of leaders of all stages of life so that they can foster gender parity and cultures of inclusion. As a relationship expert, leadership well-being coach, author, and speaker, Susan educates leaders and executives globally on fostering self-awareness for optimal leadership. Susan advises executive teams on how to work effectively and create inclusion and gender parity in organizations. She is passionate about working with women at all levels of organizational leadership to fully realize and manifest their leadership potential. Thank you for coming on the show, Susan. Thank you for having me, Deborah. It is so wonderful. I was diving in the book, so I was, you know, already diving in. And I know that you're releasing it today, which I'm so excited that I have the privilege of being able to interview you and share this book with the world. And as always, I love to just ask what, what inspired you to write this book? Because I know that, you know, from my own experience as an author, it takes a lot of work to get three voices into one. Yeah. So uh, it's a, such a great such a great question. And first of all, thank you so much for having me and um, delighting with me in what it means to arrive and thrive uh, and be a woman leader and arrive and thrive. So you look, the story behind this book is the, the honest story. This is my fourth book, but it's my first true collaboration. My, my third book was a collaboration and it's a, it's, a, it's a small playbook. This is my first big book collaboration. And um, it came to be when I took uh, the role of um, CEO of standing up a new Institute for Inclusive Leadership at a Boston-based uh, school, university called Simmons University. And uh, the provost and the president awarded me the, uh, this chair. I'm not an academic by training, and I didn't know what one had to do to prove themselves worthy of an endowed chair. And so I asked, uh, what is it that I have to do uh, other than, you know, stand up this institute for this chair? And the answer was, you know, you can just really pick a project. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to meet not one, but several senior women partners at Deloitte to talk with them about the legacy of the chair. And it was really kind of like a spiritual and magical moment because we had a lunch date and there were a handful of us and we were talking about Ellen Gabriel, who uh, was the woman at Deloitte partner who started Deloitte's women's initiatives and women's network. And 
uh, they created this chair in her honor in 2005 after she lost several battles with breast cancer in her honor. And the Deloitte Ellen uh, Gabriel Chair for Women in Leadership was created. And during the conversation over lunch, just kind of chatting with very seasoned, in very impressive women leaders, including the president of the university, it dawned on all of us that we're not still creating enough support and scaffolding for those of us who, by all accounts, have arrived in senior positions or, uh, you know, not necessarily at the very top, but certainly in positions of notable responsibility. And uh, you know what? We still need support and we need wisdom and we need um, we need our girlfriends, you know, we, we, need, we need some wisdom, some, some, some wisdom. And so uh, I, Janet Foudy is the executive chair of Deloitte and uh, uh, Lynn Perry Wooten is the new Simmons president at the time she, um, she had just joined. And the three of us got together and we decided let's do this project. And we kind of went, went over many, many of our lessons of leadership and I said this, we did a Google Talks just the other day and um, a couple weeks ago, and the um, and I kept saying, well, we have 85 years of collective leadership wisdom. And Janet's like, can you stop saying that? Because now I feel <laughs> but, you know, sort of that's where I started. And then we found some research backing and um, we sort of called together these seven practices. And gosh, you know, what a what a wild, what a wild thing. I, I do. It's probably the most meaningful project. I've ever done, and I've done a lot of really amazing um, uh, projects with incredible people. Um, and I, I feel grateful to have, you know, have this book. It, it, it's a gift, you know. I hope it's a gift to many, many people. Well, one of the things I know that it really triggered in me is this um, concept that you have in there about returning to self. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading, I was just blown away about. It was more of a reminder, a reminder to you know, as a woman leader to really be true to ourselves. And the one phrase that really stood out for me that I really like to talk about is returning to your best self is a moment to moment practice. So Susan, I would love for you to share with our audience more about what that truly means. Okay. So I love the question. Thank you for it. Uh, this is this this particular practice is near and dear to my heart. So you're referring to the first practice in the book is investing in your best self. And the chapter, half the chapter is devoted to sort of discovering what is my best self. And then the other half of the chapter is <laughs> devoted to returning there, right? Um, so let me take this in two parts. One is uh, who we are at our best. And how we define this simply, Deborah, is it's your strength, it's your character strengths and your uh, capabilities and what sort of you bring, maybe it's a character, maybe it's something you've learned, but what you bring to the table in terms of skills combined with where you are called to offer value to others combined with where you feel uh, joy and vitality. And in, 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 when those three things come together, that's my definition of thriving. Uh, we are leading from our best selves. And it's really hard to stay in that best self place. I define best self also as a place when we're grounded in compassion for ourselves and others. We are grounded in respect for ourselves and others. Um, we're proud of how we show up. We listen. We're conscious. We're aware. We ask a lot of questions. So it's a tall order when you're in your best self. It's not just going off under the steam of your own magnificence and doing whatever you want in the world. It is a thoughtful way of 
exercising your best, uh, your best strengths. The challenge is that life dishes us up all sorts of conflict and all sorts of triggers, be that external, like, you know, humanitarian crises, global pandemics that we can't control to maybe conflict with people we work with or people we live with and, and, or maybe feelings of, you know, shame and, and feeling like we're not good enough or that we should have done better. I call it the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. And so we have to figure out a way how to first notice that we're no longer in our best self, how we got kicked out. And then I literally picture catching her and be like, oh my gosh, come on back girl. Cause you are so much happier when you are in your zone um, than when you're not. And so the return is a practice that I've written. My first three, my first three out of my four books talk about this in different language. And it's a moment to moment practice um, that requires noticing and then lovingly returning to a compassionate, centered, grounded self. So I teach this work. So I can, I can, I can tell you more about it. I just don't know how, how much you want to know. <laughs> the first visual that comes to my mind, Susan, yeah. is you know, when you have that sense of falling back, it's that trust process. I know my daughter will sometimes stand in the kitchen and she goes, do I trust you, mom? Do I trust you? And then she'll fall back waiting to see if I'm going to catch her. Yeah. And I think that's that same thing in ourselves, because when those challenges come up in life, whether it be like you said, conflict or things that are out of our control could be our health. And it could be, you know, like the pandemic and other things, the economy, different thing. How do we rebound mm. to trust that we can still trust in ourselves to move through yeah. those situations. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say rebound. One of the, there was a lot of surprises as, as I, as I co-wrote and co-researched this book, one of which very, very um, honest here, I, you know, when we happened upon resilience, I, and then we, we decided to call the practice fostering resilience. My inner thought was really, do I have to, do I have to foster resilience? Cause I am plenty resilient. And to be honest, I think if you wake up woman in this world, you know, resilience, if you wake up a woman of color, you definitely know resilience. I didn't want to foster more of it, frankly, doesn't that just mean I have to go through more hardship. And the surprising thing was that when we have a setback, our comeback doesn't put us to where we just came. It from where we just came, it actually catapults us forward to a new stage of growth. So your point, uh, your point is a good one. It's, it's how do we take care of ourselves and how do we return to the best part of us when we've had a setback, expected or unexpected, you know? And I know in the book, you know, blame and shame are the enemies of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, because I always have, you know, heard about resistance being, you know, resistance to change. There's that underlying fear, but I've never heard of blame and shame being the enemy of resilience. I think blame and shame are the enemy of thriving. You know, they're the enemy of best self, right? So, so there's two, there's two forces to blaming and shaming. One force, if you, um, for those people who might be listening and not watching, one force, if I have my hands together and there's energy coming out from my hands, blame and shame can go to you, to everyone, to everyone around you, and that's to others. The, the same force turned on yourself can be blaming and shaming oneself. So this is the act of 
uh, executing on feelings about other people or about situations that either cause you to feel not good enough or frankly seem to give you rationalization to make other people not good enough. And I would say both are a losing strategy. Um, and this is where I separate Deborah human resources from human beings. So we, I think the pandemic helped us all see Literally, we saw into people's living rooms. We saw into, you know, intimacy is into me, you see. You saw, we saw human beings in the last two and a half years, more than we've seen the human beings we work with, I think, before. It's harder to create that veneer of perfection. And we also work with human resources, some of whom are the wrong resource for the job. So it's, I tell you what, it's a, it's a, it's an easy thing to wind up in your, you know, critical blaming, like, oh, well, if she would just do that, or he would just do this. So, so shame and blame doesn't feel necessarily bad to the person who's thinking about these thoughts towards others. It actually could feel good, right? Um, especially if it leaves you off the hook. Right. However, when we feel like we're ashamed or we're shaming ourselves or blaming ourselves actually feels really bad. So we're intrinsically motivated to stop blaming and shaming ourselves, but we have to learn how. We're less motivated to learn how to stop blaming and shaming other people. And we're not being authentic when we're in blame and shame because that's not the true of truth of who we are. So what, what does it mean to embrace authenticity and how does embracing on authenticity improve performance? So I don't know, there's a couple of words now in like the English lexicon that that tend to mean nothing anymore. Like leadership is like, what do we really mean when we talk about leadership? Authenticity is another one. It's like, what does this really mean? I like to break it down and make it really simple. I think authenticity is being you. It's not hiding parts of who you really are, Uh, be that certain aspects of your identity or even certain strengths that you know you have that you hide, right? Uh, And so, you know, one of the, we have Thriver's wisdom in all the chapters is, you know, in the the woman, unbelievable leader that we interviewed for the authenticity chapter is the great Carla Harris. And Carla, if you don't know Carla, listening audience, uh, just Google her and go listen to one of her uh, YouTube videos. She's pretty amazing. Um, Carla's, uh, Carla's really impacted my view on authenticity. Her view on this is your authentic self is your competitive advantage because no one can be you the way you can be you. So by definition, don't you want to embrace that? <laughs> because you're, you're bringing something unique to the table. So we don't want to squelch that. And look, that in and of itself, I think creates competitive advantage and it helps you create results. I'd say there's a prerequisite though. You got to figure out your strengths because you, you don't, I, 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 you know, when I coach women about why it's important to understand their authentic self and their strengths, I remind them that if they don't take this work seriously, and if they just perform at a high level, they will be tapped they will be asked to to step into different projects and it may or may not be work that they actually enjoy that brings them joy and vitality. And that's how you wake up 25 years in your career blank and think, oh my gosh, how did I get here? I I actually don't like this. I don't like what I'm doing every day. 
Yeah. So this is this is important stuff, I think. <laughs> it is. And you know, I don't know if this is the best metaphor, but it's the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, people yeah. will talk about a signature hairstyle or a signature style like Jackie O, for example. And when you talk about signature strengths, I think about there's certain people that I know to go to for systems and processes. They're they're the process gal. Or, you know, this person is really good with people. So I want them up front, you know, leading in that area. Or there's another person who's very analytical and might not have the skill set as much, you know, with people, but we can utilize those strengths in a different area so that she can shine in that area. So it makes me think the signature strengths, the signature hairstyle, outfit styles, you can think of certain people who can fit certain roles based on when they show up as themselves. And you know, what's really cool about what you just said is it maps really well to one of my top tips about the book. And that is to borrow your confidence. You can borrow, you can borrow skill, strength, and confidence from other people. You don't have to be strong at everything, right? If I know borrowing confidence, you know, it's funny when I wrote my last um, professionally published book, I, obviously had never done it before. And when you think about some of the most courageous moments in our lives, it's when we're about to embark on something we've never done. And, you know, chances are, chances are somebody walked before and did exactly what you're about to do. Uh, And so I went out and tapped these people who knew how to write books. And some of that was required courage in and of itself to call like, you know, a a New York Times bestselling author who I met during a consulting engagement. I'm like, I don't know if he's going to want to talk to me. And he and I said, Dave, how did you do what what do I need to know? It was so good, but he had strengths I didn't. And so did my other mentors. And um, I call them my wisdom counsel, right? Wise elders and wise youngers and uh, uh, personal board of directors who I I do, I, I think thank goodness there's all these people around me who do things well that I don't do. <laughs> I That's don't do so that. awesome because I was just going to ask you, so where does courage come from? And uh, you alluded to some, but how, how can people cultivate some of that personal courage and then a culture of courage? Yeah, so for, first things first, courage is not the absence of fear. If anything, I think it's the presence of vulnerability it's okay to feel a little nervous if you haven't done something before, you know? And uh, what, what we found in pulling together the salient research out there on courage is that number one, number two, number three, we're not meant to go it alone. So we can ask for help while we take courageous steps, you know? Uh, and that's what I mean by, by this whole notion of, um, you know, a support system. When we do an act, when we take an act of courage, I think we need people in our corner, no matter how it goes, you know, who will say, who will either congratulate us on the failure for being brave enough to do it in the first place, or who will be there to celebrate us when we win, right? So I think um, exercising frequent acts of courage is, is really critical. You know, it's interesting. I saw a post today that talked about that there's some people in your life that want to be part of the process. And then there's other people who only want to be a part of your life when there's the outcome. Mm -hmm. So it really made me think about that as you were talking about 
courage because the same thing, not everybody wants to be with you along that journey and some of those bold, courageous steps that you need to take. So what an interesting thing. So some people want to be with you on the, I, I think that's true. I'm picturing people over the course of my life. And to be honest, there's, you know, the older I get, the less time I have, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more picky. There's, you know, I don't necessarily want to go through all the process of my process with other people. I wouldn't want to put just the average, I wouldn't want to put everybody through that. I have to trust the person. I have to believe that they've got my back and, and, you know, same in return, you know? Exactly. So, you know, and that leads me to thinking about, is it more difficult for women to be bold about a vision? And also in, in addition, inspiring bold vision, what does it take? Yeah. Okay. So truthfully, uh, I, I've, I don't suffer uh, from a lack of self-confidence and I like to think big. So two of my strengths are confidence and thinking big. And so when it comes to vision, you know, I, I feel like, why, why not? I'm a dreamer. I can think of something that doesn't exist and let's go make it happen. Right. However, uh, you know, one of the most frequent questions I get from, from groups of women in particular is how can I learn how to be a visionary? And one, uh, I was really excited, not just, you know, from the thriver, uh, Helen Drynan, who we interviewed, who is a former president of Simmons University, but also from the research that it comes down to this vision is actually just noticing a change that needs to happen and then figuring out how to make the change. So when you say it like that, it's like, oh my gosh, think about how many times that you've noticed a change that needs to happen and, and figure it out. Now, here's the other thing is you don't have to notice the change either. And that's relieving, especially to a lot of women. There's no evidence that women are less visionary than men. I was so um, determined to solve this riddle because there was a very popular um, Harvard Business Review article published about a decade or so ago called Women and the Vision Thing. And essentially the research sort of landed on, yeah, well, women have a little harder time, you know, being a visionary than men. And, you know, since then, there's actually very little evidence that supports that. Uh, and I would say the, I think any human would shy from saying, oh my gosh, I have a bold vision. If in fact they think it's up to them exclusively to see the, 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 the change that needs to happen. And so, you know, the, the, the best advice I have for anyone who's looking to build their ability to, uh, uh, to hone their vision skills Number one, talk, talk to other people about what's working and what's not working in whatever context you're trying to uh, improve, be that your organization or your team or your product uh, or your idea. What am I not seeing? What could make this better? How are we doing here? You know, it's, it's interesting when, you, when a leader goes out and really listens, what's working, what's not, what would be even better if? You know, you start to notice things that need to change. Then you start to see, and then you start to ask questions about how would we do that? How would we change that? How would we make this better, right? So I'd say number one to answer your question, vision is about noticing something that needs to change and then figuring out how to change it. And number two, it's not up to one person. And then of course, there's the communication of the vision element, which is critical. You got to talk about it, tell people about it. Absolutely. That's the biggest part of being bold. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. So- you know, with Arrive and Thrive, there is so much to think about when it's stepping into thriving. 
because people, you know, they're putting in the efforts and they're wondering, will I ever be in a place where I'm thriving and I connect to my flow? So what would be three top tips you would recommend to women who are taking those bold actions to thrive where they are? Oh, I love the question. It leads me to one particular interview, which was one of my favorites during uh, the course of writing this book with my co-authors, when I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Rich Safir, who's the chief medical, I'm going to botch his title, he's basically head of wellness at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, he's he's a well-being guru. And so I was poised, Deborah, probably like you are, like, tell me what I need to do, Rich, to be, you know, to be well, to be thriving, to like have well-being. And he said, you know, Susan, it's everybody gets to determine that for themselves. Um, And so what I, tip number one is start to notice where you feel joy, what you do when you might lose time, you lose track of time because you got lost in it and it didn't take away energy. You're actually energized by it. Those are sort of like tips to notice, when am I thriving? The other thing that I learned along the way is that there's no arrival. I feel like there's no arrival. There's no arrival at enoughness. There's no arrival at a constant state of best self. There's no arrival at a permanent place, in my opinion, this is the world according to Susan Brady, of peace. I think we we arrive, we thrive, and then we arrive and thrive again, and we arrive and thrive again. And so it's a constant journey of, um, of growth and transition. And so my other tip is go back to the basics. We included uh, a values exercise in the, in the second chapter about authenticity. And what we found out about authenticity is our authenticity, what we value, changes over the course of our lifetime. You know, so to go back to that values list and see, gosh, is there something that really lights me up that I hold dear to my heart that I didn't care as much about for whatever reason, or I wasn't as aware of uh, five years ago or 10 years ago. So I would say, you know, having that level of, of, of self-awareness and then also introspection um, and reflecting about where you feel vital, vitality, that's going to be a critical part of your process as you notice and then return to thriving. So when, when do you know that you're thriving? Like, I know you talked about vital, but is there something specific? It'll be this aha moment that I'll know that I'm thriving. Yeah. You know, again, I would probably go back. So my definition of um, when I know that I'm thriving is really probably when there's some convergence of the three things that make up my best self, right? I know I'm thriving when I'm energized and when some version of my strengths and talents can add value to to others around me and when I feel joyful. And that could be, you know, riding my bike with my backpack beach chair to the beach and setting up a picnic before my kids get there. And it could be, you know, taking on a big project like standing up an institute and trusting that I have the strategic chops and the uh, capacity to lead the way, even during uncertain times. Those times I, I had the present felt experience of, um, of, of joy, of, of thriving. It happens in moments. Don't miss them. <laughs> you, know? you know, as you were talking about the chief, the head of wellness, the wellness guru, you know, 
I often think of leaders who are burning the candlestick at both ends, you know, wanting to continually grow up the corporate ladder or in their leadership or, or even in their own businesses. So what happens when a leader ignores their own well-being? Well, eventually, uh, I think they pay a price for that, be that a relational one or a health one, you know, um, mental, physical. Um, I think eventually, you know, look, our, our, our time is our most precious diminishing asset. You know, when we go hard and go fast for, you know, never mind days and weeks and, and months, but years and years and years, it will take a toll. It will take a toll. There's a reason why, you know, CEOs in their 40s and 50s are on heart medication. You know, they've been driving and going and driving and going. And so, look, I, I, I just don't, it can't be about some destination. It has to be about the journey. I think, Deborah, that's what we're talking about is arriving and thriving isn't about, a, you know, this mountaintop where like, you know, the skies will part, the angels will sing and, oh my gosh, I finally have, you know, discovered nirvana. Like it's not, it's not about that. It's about finding your arrival and your thriving in your daily life and paying more attention to the moments when you do feel like you're thriving and taking care of yourself along the way. The other thing that Dr. Safir said is when it comes to well-being, you know, pay attention to when you, what you do when you feel well in terms of taking care of yourself. And, you know, for you, it might be running three days a week. It will never be running three days a week for me. That's never going to be on my little list of how I feel well. Now, going to the, you know, going to the gym or going for long walks on a regular basis, like definitely, right? I feel better. Spending time with my girlfriends, absolutely. You know, cuddling with my dogs every day. Like these are things that go into my well-being sort of stew. But um, those are up to you. So I think even thinking it like the best gift we can give your listeners is to say, when's the last time you thought about what your, what are your ingredients to your own well-being? Yeah. And, and I know? love how you say that because it makes me think that, you know, we need to pay attention to those milestones, like that the time that we arrive and we thrive along the journey versus just where we think that we're going to need to end up. Um, I recently was reading uh, Mind Over Medicine by Lisa Rankin, who's a physician. And she said, you know, there's going to be whispers, but if you don't pay attention to your well-being, you will hear yelling and it oh. will impact your body so much that you're going to have to stop everything you're doing. So your well-being, you know, for everyone listening or watching us here on YouTube, it is really important to pay attention to that well-being because those whispers will show up. And if you're not paying attention, like you said, it can come in the price of a relationship. It can come in the price of, you know, your, your health in other ways. There, there is a cost, there is a sacrifice. Okay. I have something I just have to, I have to interject. I believe <clears throat> that those of us who are uh, inspired to live a life of significance, which is anyone who would pick up this book and find it interesting, you're in it to have a life of significance, whatever that means for you. If you're achievement oriented, and if you're a woman who's achievement oriented, you're not, you're going to quell those, you're going to quiet down those whispers. And I think what you're saying is we need to, we need to turn those up. We need to turn the volume up on those whispers because look, again, there's only so many hours in the day. And for those of us who are killing it at work and killing it at home, and we want to make sure like all the burners on the stove are, you know, 
managed, um, it's really easy to ignore, you know, the pain in the side of our leg or to blow off our annual, you know, physical or our breast exam or, you know, to, you know, I, I have a colleague, um, I won't name her name, but she did go public with this, who didn't go to the dentist for three years. And I'm like, are you sure you want to talk about this public? She's like, yes, I do. And because it's because she's got three little kids and she was working full time and, 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 right. So uh, I think your, your call is to listen to the whispers and to take care of ourselves while we uh, learn how we're arriving and thriving, right? I love that interjection, Susan, because, you know, when you said turn up the whispers, when you turn up the whispers, you won't get to the point of the yelling coming at you. I think this is, if I'm going to say there's one thing that I personally have struggled with most in my life that I find connects with a lot of, of very accomplished women that I know and men. It is really tuning in to the whispers of our heart as opposed to, you know, being handed a goal and chasing after it or, you know, being challenged by something and wanting to conquer it, right? Like it's that stimulus response as opposed to taking the space between stimulus and response. And if we channel that space and we get really selfish about it and we sit with it, and we actually add ourselves into the equation of what it means to thrive as opposed to accomplishing for everybody and everything else. Wow, I think, I think I'll, there'd be a lot more happiness, a lot more peace of mind, right? A lot more well, wellness. And, mm -hmm. you know, with that, you've already, you know, come upon my next question about what are some tips to work on yourself and become more self-aware self-aware, not only of your well-being, but what is it you truly want and that return to your best self, to know what your best self is? Yeah. So we have a lot, you know, one of the things that I love about this book is that it's tool heavy, right? So it's, it's, you can pick it up and put it down. It's meant to be sort of your sister companion on the journey. There are a lot of practices. There's a lot of tools that are suggested and, you know, it is not selfish to spend time learning more about you. And there's no shortage of podcasts, this being one of them. Um, I host a podcast called the Better Understanding Podcast. I think even seeking to understand more is a great place to start. And want to, you know, seeking to understand more about yourself, but also seeking to understand more about whatever it is that you're that you think is exciting, that lights you up. You know, so that's definitely a tip. I think curiosity is the most important and underrated skill in the entire list of possible leadership skills out there. Uh, it's, you know, it's an important one. So that, uh, I think also there's no shame in talking about asking your friends and family what, what it is that, you know, how they experience you, you at your best. And so I do probably... I don't know, Deborah, well, at least once a year, maybe every two years, depending. I'll do it quickly. This is how I coach others to do it. On my cell phone, I'll send 10 or so texts to people I trust in my professional world and in my personal life and say, uh, can you tell me uh, how you think I show up when I'm at my best? And they, I get 10, it's basically like 10 love notes of adjectives describing me at my best. And it, it sometimes I need to like, rebrand it and say, ah, oh, okay, she's, she's, she's the one I want to Velcro to and come back to as often as possible. Yes. So again, ask other people, 
how, how did how do I show, and, and, you know since you've known me when have you seen me at my best and uh, and stay and and stay for the answers you know and that's also a really good reality check to say am I seeing myself the way other people see me or am I being seen the way I want to be perceived right yeah. The other side of that, and I joke how, you know, the, the, when I work with senior executives and CEOs, you know, the, the more um, the more senior you are, the more power you have, the harder people laugh at your jokes and the less people tell you the truth, right? So I specialize in telling very accomplished people the truth about how they show up, at mainly asking them um, to ask other people about how they show up. So, and, and I personally try to practice this and I joke that my aim daily is to narrow the gap between my intention and my impact because I don't do it perfectly. You know, uh, we might have good intention, but making sure that we land the way, cause we might get exuberant. Like I get, I get so excited, Deborah. When, <laughs> when I get excited, I get really excited. Okay. And I want to go like full speed ahead. And, and sometimes my energy can be like 18 feet out in front of me. And shockingly, this can be overwhelming to some people. Um, and I, you know, which is never my intention. I just think, well, can't we just all have like a great time and just go, go fast, go a little faster here. We can have fun and go fast. And apparently some people don't like to work that way. So I have learned to sort of rein in the part of my best self that could actually lose my, the very people I need to come with me on the journey to manifest the vision that I, you know, want to make happen. Wow. You know, I, I really love that narrowing the gap between intention and impact. I've never heard it stated that way. And I, I find that very powerful to know that every day at the end of the day, I can reflect and say, okay, this was my intention. Do I know that I made that impact? And who can I ask to see if that has happened? So now that leads me to be just curious about what is your most outstanding accomplishment, something that you've achieved that has been very meaningful to you? Like other than the birth book. to children? <laughs> other than the book. I mean, that's, that's pretty, I mean, yeah. Sometimes I look at my daughters and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're just awesome. I'm so psyched to be your mom. What an honor that is. I can't believe you came, you know, came from my, my body. That's pretty cool. Um, my outstanding accomplishment. Um, you know, I've got, yeah, I don't know, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of at a loss. I think, I think I reflected on this in advance and, and had a hard time answering this because I feel, um, it's been a joy to uh, to to write the books that I've written and to you know build the businesses that I've built and and um, uh, I think probably the accomplishment I'm most proud of though is my very first keynote speech where I was encouraged by a mentor uh, to um, to get out there and 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 talk to you know 700 or 800 women at the Women in Leadership Institute that I founded in 1998, um, and this was 2000, I don't know, 14 ish, 15. And I had no idea what I was going to talk about. Of course, by the time I did it, I, I knew what I was going to talk about, but in advance, I didn't. And I thought, what can I, you know, I've run businesses and I, 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 I grow things and I, you know, I can, you know, I, I have my strengths, whatever, but what would I talk about? And um, what I ended up doing is acting out my inner critic because along the way, I learned how to coach her, uh, coach myself back to compassion. And I thought, well, 
I'll try this, see if it works. And I'll show people by telling people how I feel about my own shame and how that, what that looks like. She is, she's, she's not very nice. Um, and, and when I actually also feel disappointed in others and what that looks like, cause she's not very nice either. And how I come back to a place of respect and compassion, uh, and how I set boundaries, you know? So to, to do that, I used to go into a total, it wasn't shame attack. I just, I would get off stage when I first did these keynotes and want to hide because I just felt like so vulnerable. And I feel looking back what that started over the last, you know, eight years, um, the courage to stand up and do that. Um, and be my, be myself and tell my truth and then, and then help, you know, say, here's how I, here's how I, here's how I return, um, to what I now call my best self. Uh, that that's probably the accomplishment that I'm most proud of. So do you have a name for that inner critic? Well, I actually have a picture of me, uh, at, I, I dressed up for Halloween, uh, one year as Susie B critic and no joke. And she's, she is, uh, she's formidable. <laughs> she, uh, she's not someone you want to sit down with and have a, you know, break bread with. Um, I don't have a name for her, although I do, I, I will confess Deborah that sometimes I have to talk. I have nicknames for the part of me that needs to get into compassion. So sometimes I'll be like, Oh, Suze. Um, you know, like it's, that's the hardest thing. The hardest thing is to get back into compassion with myself when I didn't do it the way I wanted to. Yeah. Right. Or when I landed for someone else, I mean, the tricky thing about not wanting to have a gap between your intention and your impact is if you wake up human, which last I checked, we both are, we will err. You know, we will make a mistake. We will come across in a way that we didn't intend. And then we have to live with that and return to compassion and, and then apologize or clean up. You know, all relationships are harmony, disharmony, um, you know, harmony, we're getting along, disharmony, we're fighting and repair. And it's really the quality of your repair that matters most for you, for your own sanity, you know, for getting back to that place. So um, I would say, you know, sometimes I call myself honey, but I don't do it out loud. <laughs> you know, I, I find that I can totally relate to, you know, it is challenging to get back to that place of self-compassion when you have driven and, you know, put yourself at such a high standard and wanting to stay in integrity and making sure that everything looks just perfect. And when things fall apart, we can go be so harsh. I think compassion is so important. I think that's part of the reason I talk about it and I laugh about it. I mean, I don't laugh about hurting other people's feelings if that's what I'm not, but sometimes I, I, I have to look in the mirror. Like, I think I have reverse body dysmorphia. I think I was a lot thinner 20 years ago and I thought I was heavier. And now I look, I, I think I look great. And then I'll see a picture and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not as thin as I used to be. So like, it's moments like that where I just, you know, if I talk about it out loud, other people, gives other people permission to be a little more gentle with themselves and to maybe even laugh at how critical they can be and, and kind of ease their way back to a place of respect for the for themselves and others. This has been one incredible interview, Susan, and I'm so grateful that you came on the show to talk about the brand new book, Arrive and Thrive. Um, I would love to know what is one book other than the ones you've written that has been had a significant impact on your life? 
gosh, you just want me to pick one? Okay. You know, probably because I've listened to it now three times, it came out during the pandemic is, is Adam Grant's Think Again. I, 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 I'm just mesmerized by the, the whole notion of rethinking our thinking. And, and it, you know, it plays to something I've talked about for a long time, which is curious, practicing curiosity, but really rethinking our thinking. Uh, about things we believe, that is uh, a beautiful notion. And I would encourage uh, anyone who is cognitive and who wants to do better um, to rethink their thinking and, and, and look up his book, Adam Grant. Awesome. Another question we like to ask is, what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? Ooh, to live rich from the inside out. I mean, look, come on. Deborah, we've known each other for a little while now. I mean, <laughs> living rich for the from the inside out is investing in and returning to my best self. It's giving myself permission to do the things that I love and uh, to be around people who, when I'm around them, I feel good around about me. Uh, that's the inside out. It's connection with others, but it starts from a place of deep worthiness in my heart and mind, um, trusting that I know that I've got something to give. That's that's the sparkle from within, right? And you absolutely have, like I said, I'm going to, I have marks in the book, like I already highlighted and everything. <laughs> That's the way I read books. And this is such a rich read. And I highly recommend that others read the book, Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. And Susan, can you just tell us where we can get the book and how people can continue to stay in touch with you? Oh, what a great question. And thank you so much for having me. This has been such a lovely conversation, especially on the day that my book releases, this book releases. Uh, so arriveandthrive.com, okay? Arriveandthrive.com will tell you everything you want to know about the book and how to order it. Uh, and then I'd love it if you're interested in the journey of uh, the intersection between leadership and inclusion, I would invite you to join us at inclusiveleadership.com. Uh, we have, uh, we work with organizations around the world uh, to help demystify what it means to lead inclusively and support more women uh, to step into their greatest uh, potential. Fantastic. And I will have all the links and everything in the show notes so people can Great. stay in touch and connect with you and <clears throat> get the book, the links. Yeah, link in with me. I, I post stuff on LinkedIn that I like and a lot of the contributors in the book are, you know, we, you'll see you know, we kind of follow each other. So awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to doing that myself as well. Um, thank you again, Susan. My, my, make sure I say this right. Thank it's you. It's McIntyre. Can I just do it for you? It's okay. Everyone gets, yeah, it's fine. And you know, I won't, I won't, yeah, it's, 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 it's McIntyre Brady and it's, it's, it's also known as McKenzie. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being such a gracious guest. And uh, I look forward to you celebrating your milestones of achievement with this book and bringing it out to the world and, you know, helping leaders, women and men included, to really step into the best selves and contribute to the leadership that they were meant to do, stepping into their potential. Awesome. Thank you for having me again. You're very welcome. And everyone, I'd love for you also to go over my website at www. DebraKazowski.com. Right now you can get your three-part video course on making habits stick and build focus and consistency in your life, your organization, or your business so that you can have those things become a reality. As Mahama Gandhi said, be the change you wish to be in the, see in the world and go out and make today great. <music>